Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. We're along with my partners, Ann and Crystal. We do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. In my 59 years, I've been very fortunate and met many famous people, from working with Larry King in my 20s when I met Sinatra, Reagan, Jimmy Carter, John Glenn, to name a few. And through nonprofit work over the years, I've even met some of my musical idols like Bruce Springsteen, Steve Van Zandt. And I even met Paul McCartney once buying bananas in one in a market in Long Island. Now, I only tell you this because today is one of those days that shows me, and hopefully you as well, listening to this podcast, that the people that we should all be learning more about and wanting to meet are not actors or musicians, certainly not politicians, but those that are dedicating their lives to making some of the United Nations sustainable goals like good health and well-being, for example, come true. This is not just common sense, by the way, it makes great business sense as well. At UBS, we call them global visionaries. On a previous episode, I introduced you to Sonia Lowe, who through vertical farming is changing the way we grow food. Today, I'm honored to be sitting here with a gentleman who the name visionary couldn't possibly be more spot on. Andrew Bastaros, who by training is an ophthalmologist, an eye surgeon to be clear, an associate professor in international eye health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, but more importantly, has worked and undertaken research in over 20 countries, including living in Kenya for two years, where he led a major eye disease study and began the development and testing of PEAK, a registered charity based in the United Kingdom that is bringing better eye health for the millions of people worldwide who need it. Andrew has said that eyesight is the world's most neglected disability. A third of the world's population needs better access to eye care. The statistics are staggering. 2.2 billion people worldwide have vision impairment. In at least 1 billion of these cases, their condition is treatable or preventable. Ensuring 100% have access to eye care is Andrew and Peaks Vision's ambitious plan. So today we're going to hear his story, what specifically his technology is doing, what led him to pursue a $1 billion vision catalyst fund, along with the Queen Elizabeth Diamond Jubilee Trust and our own UBS Optimus Foundation, which you'll hear more about in a future show, and leading eye health organizations. Last year, Andrew gave the keynote speech at the Commonwealth Service at Westminster Abbey in the presence of Her Majesty the Queen and other members of the royal family. I'm kind of guessing we're going to see that in season 25 of The Crown, just kind of running the numbers there. I don't know who's going to play the Queen by then. Helen Mirren, probably. I know that was a lot to take in, but trust me, the best is yet to come as we welcome Andrew to Financially Speaking. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Mitch. So, first of all, it's an honor to meet you. truly is. And I appreciate you taking the time to chat today. I thought the best way for us to begin is to tell the story you gave on a recent TED Talk about Mama Jane and Teresa which really started you on this journey. Thank you, yeah. Mama Jane was someone I met when I was living in Kenya, working as an eye surgeon and as a researcher. I was there trying to understand how do you go from managing an individual to managing a population of hundreds of thousands or millions of people that have an eye health need. And Mama Jane was one of those people. It was one of our clinics. We'd seen a couple of hundred people that day and we were 
doing a roll call of people who we'd listed for cataract surgery, which is a transformative procedure that takes just 10 minutes to take her to the nearest hospital. And as we went through the list of people that were there, we spoke to Mama Jane, and then it turns out the person who'd been sat next to her for the last hour or so was her best friend, but they'd not seen each other in 10 years, hmm. literally, because both had gone blind from this preventable condition cataract. So there they were sat together suddenly in each other's arms, kind of disbelieving that they were in each other's presence again, having been best of friends for decades and then hmm. it being most of the last decade that they'd lost touch with what each other. Wow. Um, and in many ways, their story represents everything that we stand for. People have become isolated, invisible, who have a side problem that is entirely treatable um, and we're not doing enough to, to find them and make sure this problem doesn't continue to grow as it is. Sure. So let's go back to your childhood. And if you don't mind, I think listening to your story when it comes to your own eyesight really kind of puts this all in great perspective for, for many of us. So what they called being a lazy child was really just a simple vision test and getting glasses, right? I mean, something along those lines. Yeah. So I grew up in the UK. I went to a good school, but my teachers would regularly say things that I, I was lazy or uh, daydreaming a lot or not paying attention. What I didn't know and what they didn't know was that I couldn't see and the world was out of focus for me. And if uh, glasses prescriptions mean anything to you, I was around minus three and a half, minus oh, four. I mean something. That's about where my daughter is. It's <laughs> not that far off either. Yeah, pretty poor sight. Yeah. Um, I'd managed to get to the age of 12 without this being picked up. Um, and I, you know, you learn to adapt. You figure the world is like this for everyone else. Um, and eventually I went for an eye test and, and when I was at the optometrist and they were doing the sight test, they were pretty shocked at just how poor my sight was. And, and they're saying, how on earth have you managed for this long? And before they even finished doing the examination with the trial frame still on, which had the multiple lenses in there, uh, said, just go and stand outside the edge of the shop and tell me what you can see. And I never will forget that moment. I looked across the car park at the trees and saw that they had leaves on them <laughs> and it was so clear and so vivid. I just couldn't believe what I'd been missing. Um, and a couple of weeks later, I got my first pair of glasses. That night, I saw stars for the first time. Mm. Really, from that point on, my life completely changed. Oh, I'm, I'm certain. I mean, it's, it's, it's unimaginable. And, it, and I've, I have heard that story many times where, unfortunately, kids are misdiagnosed for whatever reasons. And it's really as simple as just getting glasses. It's just really amazing how that happened. So... Tell us more about founding Peak Vision and, and what you've accomplished so far and what your missions and goals are in the near future. So how, let's just, I guess, maybe take us on the journey from seeing the stars in the sky to, to, to where you are today. Sure. So that year when I first got my glasses was fairly pivotal, I'd say, in my life journey. So having gone from, you know, the child that couldn't see to suddenly thinking, wow, I might be able to do something with my life, you know, Teachers spoke about me differently. My friendships changed. It was all positive. And um, but that same year in the summer holidays, I was with my parents in Egypt, where they're from originally. We were traveling through a place in Cairo known as El Zebelin, which is where a lot of the trash from the city gets collected and stored and packaged. Mm -hmm. And I just remember being completely shocked that anyone would live uh, amongst the waste. And then I saw a family there and a boy that looked just like me. And I just remember looking at him and thinking that I don't get it. How come you got your life and I got mine? Who dealt this hand? And, and I couldn't really understand how I, you know, I was on the fortunate side of it. 
And I think age 12, I didn't really have the emotional language to explain what I was feeling, but I felt completely crushed by the experience. I just, the world no longer felt like a fair place. Yeah, a guest I had a few weeks ago, an author by the name of Flip Flippins, actually, he talks about first life, second life, third life, and, and how you have no choice with what your first life is. You know, your first life was so fortunate. And there was this child in Egypt who his first life, he, you know, he had nothing. The story, really a first story, not a first life. He didn't write. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and still to this day, I can't understand how we each got the hand that we did. It took me a few years to start to reconcile that this is the way the world is, but I thought it's not the way I want the world to be. And so I either accept it or I try and change it. And kind of age 16, I made a almost a commitment to myself that I would do whatever was in my power to try and do what I could. And that was really when the journey mm -hmm. began, eventually taking me to medical school, right. to becoming an eye surgeon, and then eventually leaving my job as an eye surgeon. My wife also left her job as a children's doctor and we moved to Kenya. And that was really when things started to accelerate. How old were you when you moved to Kenya? That was, I would have been about 32. Mm -hmm. So it was going back eight years ago. Now. Right. And that just changed everything once you got over there. Yeah. I mean, we were, we, it was there to do research, but also to try and establish a hundred temporary eye clinics. Mm -hmm. We were there with our one-year-old son, with our first child. So we kind of, we didn't have any team there. We didn't have any friends there. We had to find somewhere to live. We had to build a team and kind of learn the really hard way. And it, it was a tough place to be. It didn't feel safe a lot of the time. It took us a long time to understand the culture and yeah. try and embed in it. But eventually, as we did, we would just come across so many people every day that were vision impaired and didn't need to be. Every time we ran a clinic, there'd often be 200 people waiting. Hmm. Most of the people waiting had a treatable condition. And what's more, there were so many other people affected by them. So you'd often see elderly people with a, a young grandchild no longer in school because they're looking after the grandparent. Um, and these huge knock-on effects that were coming from this. And it started to dawn on me that I was just seeing the people in the queue who wasn't in the queue. Right. And actually, I'm, I'm not going to be here forever. And even if I did this every day for the rest of my life, I would barely scratch the surface. Right. So something had to change. And, and that was when the work of Peak began. Mm. So let's talk about the smartphone-based technology that you worked on developing and, and how simple it is to begin the process to help those with no money or ability to improve or even regain their eyesight, as well as enabling healthcare providers to supply cost-effective targeted treatment. What was it like developing that technology? I, I, I'll let you describe it. We will, on this podcast, on the show page, have a video and you can get to see specifically how it works, but I'll let you, you know, actually talk about it. Sure. So the, the problem was that we were trying to overcome was that here in the US for every 75 ophthalmologists, there's only one or two in Kenya. And so when you have so few people that can provide the services, if you also have them as the same people that have to go out and find the people with the problem, then it's near impossible to, to try and break out this cycle. So the idea was to be able to equip non health workers to be able to find the people who were invisible, like Mama Jane, mm -hmm. in their communities, in schools, and pick them up early, but in the hands of people who could cross that last mile, you know, community volunteers, teachers. And so we set about developing a smartphone-based vision test that would work as well in the hands of a school leaver as it would as specialists doing a comprehensive eye test. And that's exactly what we did. It took about 18 months till we built this 
simple to deliver vision tests that you could do in any language that automates the thinking and decision making around measuring somebody's vision so that practically anybody could do it in a matter of seconds. And it would identify whether somebody had a vision problem or not. It would then show the examiner what that visual world looked like for that person. So it creates a simulation on the screen so that the teacher, for example, knows that that kid isn't lazy. Mm -hmm. They're not, not paying attention. They just can't see. Um, and it's very hard to explain that in numbers, but when you show somebody through a simulated video of the world they're looking at, they really get it. How did you raise the funds to get that technology done initially? So in those early years, it was, if you like, sweat equity. Yeah. So pro bono support mm -hmm. from friends, family. Right. Um, it wasn't a Kickstarter campaign. We did do one yeah. after a couple of years, right. but the first thing was I met a software developer. I said what I was trying to do, and he said, sure, I'll come and help you for two weeks. So he said, I'll fly out to Kenya and we'll do some prototyping. Nine months later, he was still there living Wow. in our spare room <laughs> it gets quite addictive when you see people get their site restored yeah. and then equally we start bringing other engineers a team started to build who just shared a passion for solving this problem and we had no no income we just used our time and that really got us to the first first stage when we did then run a crowdfunding campaign and then we won various awards which mm -hmm. we basically reinvested all of it back into right. building a team and the work. So I'm always fascinated when something that probably was so simple to fix has taken so many years, really hundreds of years and, you know, thousands of years, truly, until you came along and pun intended could clearly see the solution. So where does that inspiration come from, especially day to day? Well, first, I should say I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, people have done a huge amount of work in this space and, you know, glasses were invented 700 years ago. So the, the issue is we're often, focusing, we're often focusing on delivering innovation, whereas in fact, we just need to innovate how we deliver. Hmm. Because when a third of the world can't access something that has been around for almost a millennia, we're missing something. And so I feel like the inspiration for me comes back to that injustice that I felt when I was 12. It's like, the world is this way, it makes no sense. So we can either complain about it or we can do something. And that that has been continually the driving purpose. And, you know, every day we're uncovering new challenges and they become new opportunities to solve a problem. And the deeper we go, the more complex the issue becomes, but also the more solvable it becomes. Yeah. Now, I'm, I've heard this over and over again. It's, it's usually some moment, whether it's in your childhood or early adulthood, that just sort of, you know, was that aha moment. And, you know, you certainly had that when you were very young and, you know, made it very, very clear to you, there was a problem and, and this is something that could be done. So the success of Peak has led you to present at a UBS Global Philanthropy Forum, which now has resulted in becoming a global visionary here at UBS. But I understand listening to Sir Richard Branson and the Audacious Project, which was a TED model that helped solve major social issues through collaborative philanthropy, really took you in a bit of a different direction. What was that like? What drove you to that next step? I found it fascinating being in a room of, you know, incredibly successful entrepreneurs who are, you know, all ultra high net worths. It got me thinking that if we're going to solve the biggest problems in the world, we're going to need serious capital to do it. Um, and we're going to need a model whereby a need dictates where that funding is used. And the problem is in the same way, when I was eight, nine years old, I didn't know that I couldn't see. So I wasn't asking anyone to help. And if you look at the low and middle income countries around the world where these problems are by far greatest, they're not as loud in terms of their ability to kind of raise awareness about the issues, raise funds to 
to solve it. And so we're kind of in this perpetual cycle of the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer. And I felt there was a need to somehow reverse the model some way to take a broader look that if we moved away from the typical three, four, five year funding cycle and start to think on a generational funding cycle, then maybe we could solve generational problems that are really systems change based. They're not project based. And by that, I mean, if you can help a country's population see, then that population will become more productive, will have better education, better health, more economically active, costing the economy less in terms of support. And that in itself starts to pay for itself, but only if you have a much longer horizon. Oh, absolutely. And so that was really the inspiration for this idea of a vision catalyst fund was to be able to support all of the organizations in a method that's led by local government. So there's local ownership and local responsibility for seeing it through, but with the working capital that's needed by local government and by civil society organizations who know how to meet the need to work together towards it, but with a long-term outcome in mind rather than short-term project. Because, you know, NGOs, charities are all working on fumes. Right. It's really hard to raise the working capital to deliver meaningful change. Absolutely. And at UBS, we obviously, we take sustainability very seriously on not only the social value, but on the investment side as well. And, you know, those that truly get it, and you just said this, realize that doing good actually makes very good economic sense. So what have you learned about that and a little bit more and seen firsthand as you began raising money, including having the Queen Jubilee Trust get involved? That that obviously is a high honor, but but beyond that is obviously involves a lot of money and, and, and clout. So the trust were kind of key in all of this and inspirational, really, in the way they supported us. So many years before, kind of Peak was really well known and they backed us at a very early stage. So they're some of the things that they've done that is unique is that they're a five-year fund, so they're now actually closing down. Mm-hmm. And they've had that outlook the whole time. Is if we're closing down in five years and they're a hundred million pound fund, then think of legacy. How do we really enable others to create change? And that has been so apparent in the way they've not just granted us funding, but supported us and partnered with us and pivoted with us when we've seen that actually we thought the problem looked like this, but actually it's different now that we're closer to it. And they've helped us make that change to the point that they were willing to give us considerable funding, basically to provide a runway along with other partners to deliver a demonstration model in Botswana of what a school I health program could look like. And that model was then adopted by the government based on the strength of the evidence. And, and what we were able to show is 130 times return on investment. If you provide eye health services to school children over their lifetime, you'll get 130 times return. And so that model was only made possible because of organizations like them that gave us the runway to build the team, test the model, and then go through the three to four year negotiating period to actually get this on the table. And really that was the inspiration is, you know, can we get other organizations like that to take that kind of outlook, carry some of the risk for all these social enterprises, charitable organizations who are completely committed to making change, but it's really difficult when they don't have the funds to do it properly. Right. And if we can do it in a way whereby government leads the criteria and the prioritization of what's been done, but they also commit to funding it in the long term if it works. Because if it works, it's in their benefit and it's in everyone else's benefit. And so yeah, it's been a an incredible journey and, and really excited that we could start to see 
change at the level that's needed. Oh, absolutely. And clearly you've won several accolades with your work, including a digital top 50 award from Google, Kinsey, and the very prestigious Rolex Award for Enterprise. If I may be so bold, it wouldn't surprise me if Nobel comes calling one day as well. But as an entrepreneur that's clearly doing so much good, I wonder day to day where you get that inspiration. You know, I mean, you've obviously had the successful practice as an eye surgeon and made the choice to go over to Kenya and develop this and now have taken this to to a whole, you know, another level. I mean, do you ever sit and wonder, you know, if all of this is, is it all achievable without getting political? Clearly, the world will have to take more notice and get more involved. The real question I'm asking is how long is this mission going to take? You know, it, it, I'm sure it gets frustrating at, at times when not everybody in the world is is looking at things as clearly as maybe they should. I mean, for me, this is a, a beyond my lifetime mission. So, you know, I'm realistic. This is not something me or anyone else is going to solve in the next few years. But what I do believe is within a generation, we can reach a tipping point whereby People don't even talk about this anymore because it's no longer an, a hidden issue. It's a priority that everyone gets access to be able to see. We live in a world that is visual and yet we hold back a third of the planet from being able to participate fully. It just seems insane that it does. And when you think about the probably the number one growth industry in the world when it comes to marketing, when it comes to advertising, when it comes to financial services, when it comes to really any anything is video. And you have to be able to see the video. So, I mean, it just, like you said, makes a lot of economic sense to have a lot more eyeballs literally, you know, out there able to see. So this is a question you probably have never been asked before, and maybe a bit strange, but after asking Sonia Lowe, another global visionary, I, I thought I would throw it by you as well. So it was a little different question. So do you ever wonder if you had lived in a different time period, I don't know, let's say 400 years ago or so, what do you think would have been your trade? So I guess in other words, if there really was a museum of past lives, like in one of my favorite films, Defending Your Life, what do you see yourself as doing for a living or to make a difference? Well, very practically speaking, had I been born 400 years ago, I would have been incredibly short-sighted. I would not have had glasses. So the opportunities of things I would have been able to do would have been incredibly narrow. It would have had to be things that I could do up close. Mm. Um, my education would not have been on a par with peers. So I guess the reality is my life would have been probably what it's like for the people we're trying to serve in lower middle income countries. Hmm. I really wouldn't have had much opportunity. I suppose that's the very thing that spurs me on is that is what it is like for a huge amount of the planet right now. Right. Yeah. I that, get that's so. something that hasn't really changed. No, yeah, it, it hasn't. And it will. Yeah. It, I mean, it has it's to. starting to. Yeah. People like you are making a difference. And, you know, all of this is incredible, but I want to leave our listeners with a call to action because I know just being in your presence and after researching you over the past few weeks, I have this urge myself to kind of drop everything and get out there and do something. I had this conversation with my family over the last two weeks. Like, what are we doing? I mean, incredible what, what is happening out there. So how should those that want to help, whether it be financially or volunteering their time, take the first step. Now, we will, of course, link up to peakvision.org website, which has really, really great information, certainly helps, tells people how to, you know, donate money and everything. But what other thoughts do you have there? I, you know, with all of these things, if 
if for you as an individual, you feel like there's something in you that says I'm waking up every morning and I'm not entirely happy with what I'm spending my lifetime doing it. You know, is there something that is bigger than you that you feel is worth taking risks that mean you'll step out of your comfort zone? Um, for me, a lot of it has been, um, asking the right question. So the question being not how am I going to do this, but if I'm going to do it, because the question is how you end up never doing it because you don't know the answer. The question is if you just take a leap of faith and work it out as you're going. Um, and I remember when I was about to become a father for the first time, uh, and I'm, you know, really blessed with three incredible children now. If I was asked, how do you raise a child? If I had to be able to answer that, I would never have done it. But if I want to be a parent, it's a different question. Right. Very um, true. And you work it out. And I, I would say the same for anyone. Don't, don't hold back doing something that is of meaning and because you don't know how to do it. Just jump at it and see what happens. One last thing I, I was told that uh, you're starting a podcast or, or you were just recently on a podcast with Formula One Mercedes director Toto Wolf. What, 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 what's that all about? What can people expect there? Yeah, it was. Uh, I was surprised and honored to get to share a room with Toto for a couple of hours. We just had great conversation learning. You know, he's a, a really great leader. And a lot of the conversation was about how do you build a team? How do you lead? How do you use data to drive performance? So, so much of what we do is we use data to shed light on those people who are invisible and to change behavior in terms of program design around getting to those people and make sure people aren't left behind. And there was so much that they were doing at Formula One in terms of using data to improve the car's performance. And so, yeah, it ended up being a, a fascinating <laughs> conversation. So it wasn't like karaoke in a car. You weren't doing the interview in a Formula One race car going around the track. No, that would have been fun, but uh, <laughs> probably too noisy in the background. Exactly. Well, as I said in the opening of the show, listening and, and, and meeting you today, I can with 100% confidence say you, sir, are a rock star. I don't know if you play music, but certainly the millions of people you and Peak Vision are helping think so as well. And, and we certainly do at UBS as well. I didn't even get to mention that you and your wife have established a social enterprise, Healthy Bakery in Kenya, that it provides employment with profits that pay for eye care. Are you doing the baking yourself? Are these just family recipes? Or are you finding... Uh... My wife is an incredible sourdough baker. Oh. Um, it was really her inspiration when we were living in Kenya that could we find some way of providing employment? You know, a bakery was a great way, but we didn't want to do an unhealthy bakery that basically created more eye problems further right, down the line. Exactly. And yeah, that's been a great joy, but also a great challenge in establishing a, a business has been very difficult. Oh, I would imagine. Uh, we kind of like to be able to work together on solving mm -hmm. problems that we can. Uh, that's great. So the impact of blindness and vision impairment on individuals, their families, communities, and countries clearly is considerable. Thank you, Andrew, for all you have done. And I know we'll continue to do making a difference as we go forward. So that is our show for this week. Thank you again for listening to Financially Speaking, either here on LinkedIn, on our UBS show page, Spotify, and hopefully Apple podcast when this airs. Special thanks to Robert Bohr, who's in Switzerland, who runs the UBS Global Visionary Program for his help on this episode and recommending Andrew and all the folks at Resonate Recording who always do such a good job editing and getting it out there. And remember, when it comes to saving for your future and for those that you can help with your own philanthropy, pay yourself first. Have a great week. 